Kids, I want to start by inviting two friends that I have with me to help me out with a little message to you. So I want you to imagine this, kids. I want to imagine you're playing in a playground, you brought your favorite stuffed animals, and you're just minding your own business, playing, having a good time. And some mean old kid comes and grabs your favorite bunny, starts strangling it, beating it, and just like ripping it from your hand and stomping on it, kneeing it, like WWE stuff, and you're just like crying, and you're like, what? What is going on? Why is, why is he, why are they abusing my bunny? And they just take it and they throw it. And you're just in tears because this mean old kid has just abused your bunny and thrown it away and you're never going to get it back. Now imagine there's an adult nearby. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a babysitter. Maybe it's an older sibling who's looking after you and, and they say to you, oh, it's okay, I'll buy you a new doll. Or, don't cry, there's nothing we can do now. Or maybe worse, they say something that makes you feel bad about yourself. They say something like, stop crying, boys don't cry. Or maybe they say, well, you have so many dolls anyway, don't worry about it. Or, why didn't you do something to stop that kid? Stand up for yourself. And you feel worse after your bunny got thrown away and beat up, and you feel even worse. I have to admit that I, as an adult, have said things along those lines sometimes when something happened to my kids and, and they were sad. It would really be better if the adult just said, I'm sorry, it was so awful of that kid to take your doll and do that to it. I know you love that doll so much, it makes me really sad too. Wouldn't it be nice if adults just consistently treated your sadness that way? Honestly, often adults are not very good at being sad. And they want to fix it when people are sad because, you know, no one likes to see other people sad and that makes sense. But kids, I want you to know that it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry, boys or girls. Today's passage in the Bible, that is really what God is trying to teach us, that it's okay to be sad. And it's okay to, to be sad right before God, that he loves you, that he cares about you, that he's always listening and that he wants you to bring your sadness and your tears to him. Now, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get your doll back, but that he promises that he is one day going to make everything right, and that we can trust in him with that. So I hope that what you take from today, and as we're going to explore even more as, as, as adults today, or if you're going to continue with us, then great, that God says it's, it's okay to be sad and to bring that sadness to him in just the most honest way that you can. So we're looking at Psalm 74, grown-ups and kids alike, and just want you to know, again, we, we're diving into book three of Psalms. We looked at book one two summers ago. We looked at book two last summer, and now we're in book three of um, the Psalms. And it's actually kind of known as the, the, the dark book of Psalms. There are a lot of complaints and laments in this, in this book. And... The psalm we're looking at today is Psalm 74, but actually Psalm 73, which is the first psalm in, in book three, Psalm 73 and 74 are really like a pair. Psalm 73 is spoken from the perspective of the individual lamenting, crying out to God as an individual, particularly at how the evil seem to be prospering. But Psalm 74 is a community lament. It's a lament for people to, to cry out to God together as God's people. 
And so just something to, to point out since we're not looking at Psalm 73. And really, it's a very simple message. It's the title of the, the, the sermon today. It's Lament and Remember. And I hope that's something that you carry with you the rest of this week, the rest of your life, that God calls us to lament and remember. And we're just going to relatively quickly go through the whole psalm. First section in Psalm 1 through 11, we see the lament and really this cry of why and how long rings out um, in this section. We see that the psalmist in Israel, the situation they're in is that they're dealing with the fact that the temple of God is in ruins. And perhaps the specific context is that Jerusalem has been destroyed by Babylon. And it's not just the temple. And in fact, all of Jerusalem has been ransacked and the people of God are, are crying out because they feel like God has left them and has not protected them. Now in this psalm, the, the guilt of God's people, God's covenant people is not addressed, but we should not presume that that means that they are innocent before God. We know, that in, we know from scripture that Israel was being judged by God for their unfaithfulness to him. Now Israel may be guilty before God, but at the same time, Gentile nations must be held accountable for their violent deeds against God's people. And the psalmist reminds us that God's glory is paramount. Now, it may be quite hard for us to relate to as Christians today. Perhaps if our church building was burnt to the ground by people explicitly against Christianity, we'd feel some indignation against, against these people and for God. Perhaps if we were Catholics and Vatican, the Vatican was, was ransacked by another nation, Catholics would feel this righteous anger, and, but also wonder why God would not prevent such a thing. The psalmist here deeply feels, why would God allow the temple of God, where the presence of God is to dwell, to lie in ruins? And the psalmist just honestly laments before God, asking these questions. And the question it makes us ask ourselves is, how do you do with lamenting? Now, I feel a little bit like a broken record, and maybe you're even wondering in your head, how many sermons on lament can he preach on? And my answer is, as many sermons as the scriptures direct me to preach it on. Now, I know I have a choice on what I choose to preach on, but we were going to do book three of the Psalms, and there's a lot of lament in book three. And as we have been told again and again as Christians, if you, we want a model for crying out to God, go to the Psalms. And even as I've gone through the Psalms for the last three summers, I myself has been surprised by how many Psalms of lament there are. In our culture's increasing awareness for mental health and the importance of mental health, it has become quite fashionable to uphold this biblical category of lament. But as a pastor, I know from talking with people on a regular basis about the issues they go through that there is a difference between intellectually acknowledging that lament is a good thing and actually lamenting over the ways you have been sinned against and over your own sins. There's a difference between that intellectual acknowledgement and doing the work ourselves to lament. And let me tell you very plainly your inability to lament for the ways you have been sinned against will limit your ability to lament for the ways your neighbor has been sinned against. Let me say that again. Your inability to lament for the ways you have been sinned against will limit your ability, ability to lament for the ways your neighbor has been sinned against. 
as Christians, this is pretty obvious. We recognize and believe we live in a broken world. We have all been sinned against. And if we have all been sinned against, then we have reason to lament. But lament is very difficult because it is very painful. You might ask, why would anyone choose to sit in those feelings of sadness and lament and grief and pain any longer than they have to? You may ask, why would I revisit hurt in the past? Or what good does it do to lament? As a result, we as, we as individuals, again, because of our desire to avoid pain, have almost all of us developed some kind of defense mechanism to short-circuit the need to lament. We rationalize, we intellectualize, we numb out, we rage out, we excuse anything but lament. We subconsciously tell ourselves anything is better than having to lament. Can you name your go-to strategy when grief creeps up on you? Can you name your go-to strategy when grief creeps up on you? Do you let yourself grieve and lament? There's two very specific strategies that I think have worked out well for people in order to avoid lament, and I'm just going to talk about them real quick because it's kind of, a, I think, an interesting way to look at this psalm. The first is over-spiritualizing. So I want you to imagine, again, this, the lament that the, the, the psalmist just cried out. Now imagine this psalmist had a friend sitting nearby listening to this lament that the psalmist was bringing before God. Imagine the friend says to the psalmist, dude, it's just a building. God doesn't actually live in it. You know that, right? God created the whole world. He is present in all things. Don't worry, God is in control. Well, that, my friends, is over-spiritualizing. The friend spoke, yes, some theological true stuff, but completely misses the psalmist's grief and appropriate godly grief, I might add. God allowing the Babylonians to ransack Jerusalem and God's temple was meant to grieve Israel, to wake them up from their spiritual stupor. Now, another strategy that is common to all of us, and I'm gonna coin a new term today, at least I think it's new, it's over-materializing. So over-spiritualizing versus over-materializing, meaning um, over-materializing is when we minimize the spiritual dimension and turn our attention almost only to the material and to the physical. Imagine another friend listening on this lament that the psalmist brings before God, and the friend says to the psalmist, yeah, dude, I'm so angry too. This is so wrong. I've had enough of these Babylonians. Let's round up the strongest men with our best weapons and find the nearest Babylonian outpost and take them down. Let's take Jerusalem back now. This friend could have been right about fighting against injustice and yet also completely missed the, the psalmist's grief this friend also missed the opportunity to wake up from his spiritual stupor. Last week in my sermon, I tried to be real honest, and sometimes us pastors feel a lot of pressure to have all the right answers, to speak with great conviction and certainty, and let me say, 2020 has thrown that out the window completely if pastors are trying to do that, and certainly it's out the window for me. I am not sure what's going on with COVID-19 or what the right answers are for that. 
I do not have the answers for the racial injustices that we see in our nation. I do think listen, lament, and learn is a great beginning, and I've had to, even as things have been kind of brought to the attention, seen my own privilege of not having to deal with it, and had to wrestle with my own apathy and my own fears, and the work must continue in me. I've tried to share honestly and lean into what I feel confident that is taught in God's word. And last week I said, more often than not, anger clouds, but grief clarifies. Anger clouds, but grief clarifies. How can we wade through the complexity of issues and sins we face in this world if we can't simply lament for the ways we have been sinned against? If we can't lament for the ways we have been hurt, how will we lament for the general brokenness of this world? How will we lament for those of our neighbors who have been hurt, who have, been, who have faced injustice on a daily basis? How will we lament with others for the ways they've been sinned against by individuals and by institutions? I don't know if... Uh, you came out to the We Need to Pray event that was put on by several evangelical churches this last Wednesday night. And I, I went with my oldest son, Elijah, and, and I was so encouraged to see so many churches in our area come together to pray for those who are hurting. I was so encouraged to see the number of Christians that came out that night to, again, to pray and to listen and to lament. But can I be honest? I'm going to be, you know, that's what people say when they're about to be honest anyway. I was also grieved. I was grieved. There just honestly wasn't enough listening or lamenting that evening. I can't say I was surprised, although I was grieved. Neither our culture at large or the evangelical church in general is good at grieving. That's just a fact in my eyes. We are still in the baby stages of allowing ourselves to grieve and allow that in others as well. I read in an article this week by Jamar Tisby who said, we have to do the hard work of heart work. And he was speaking specifically as an African-American facing the injustices today and giving advice not just to African-Americans but to all who are wrestling with such big questions. So my application question to you on this section is, what is the hard work of heart work that you need to do in lamenting? What in, you, in your life have you not lamented about before God? What therefore keeps you from lamenting for the downtrodden? We recognize that we don't pray against our enemies anymore as Christians. Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies instead but we still long for God's glory to be made known just as the psalmist did and his name to be made great. We still pray for evil to be eradicated from this world, but we know that as Christians, ultimately, this only happens as our hearts turn to God, the God who died on the cross for us, and as, as we turn to the God who is bringing in his kingdom. And as we looked at in Revelation and was unveiled to us, what we really pray against is our one true enemy, Satan. And yes, we must work against injustices in this world, but we must also do the hard work of lament as we do it. So may we lament with the psalmist against Satan while longing for the gospel to transform hearts. But the psalmist doesn't just leave us there with lament. He calls us to remember, and to remember in two ways. Verses 12 through 17, he says, remember who God is. 
and he points out that God is king, creator, and redeemer. In this imagery in verses 12 through 17, the psalmist again remembers God as king, creator, and redeemer, and in his lament, he brings to his mind for the comfort of himself and his community the characteristics of God that would bring comfort. When everything seems out of control, it is good to remember that God is king over all, creator of all, and redeemer of all who would put their trust in him. Mark, Mark Futado in his commentary in the Psalms says this about the imagery of Leviathan, well, not just Leviathan, but the imagery there in, in, um, about Leviathan. He says, the splitting of the sea, sea monsters' heads, and the crushing of the heads of Leviathan allude to the mythological defeat of Yam by Baal, a Canaanite deity, and perhaps to the defeat of Tiamat by Marduk, a Babylonian deity. The confession of faith here, however, is that it is the Lord God of Israel, not Baal or Marduk, who is the true king from ages past. And if we look further into scripture and look at when Leviathan is used in scripture and is used five times in the Old Testament, it always references how God is the one who defeats that which we fear. It has been used as a metaphor for Egypt in the Old Testament, a metaphor for Babylon, and here a reference to a Canaanite myth, but all for the comfort of believers to know that we are to turn to the God as the one who has power over all of our greatest fears. After all, he is king, creator, and redeemer, and he calls us to remember who he is. But he calls us to remember in a second way in verses 18 through 23. He calls us to remember God's covenant and God's promises. Verse 18, it says, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. He's referring to Israel and the foreign nations. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Verse 18 here is, is an appeal not to Israel's merit. Again, Israel has been judged by God as unfaithful. So the appeal is not to Israel's merit, but to Israel as the downtrodden and the poor and the needy. The, the appeal is for God to be the God who fulfills the promise he made in his covenant. And verse 18 here, when it says remember, the same word for remember in Hebrew is used in verse two. Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. And so even in this section, he's, he's recalling back to Exodus, the work of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And so what we see here, what is so beautiful, the remembering here is, in some ways it is, yes, us remembering, but it is actually the psalmist calling God to remember his covenant, for God to remember his promises and to save his people from slavery, from, from captivity, from being downtrodden by the foreign nations because of God's own integrity, because of God's promise, because of God's loyal love. We see that God doesn't just do it because he loves humanity and loves people. He does it because he must be true to his own word and the promise that he made to his people. And so when we call on God to remember his promises and to be true to his promises, then we are indirectly reminding ourselves to remember the kind of God he is again. He is a God who is faithful and true to his words and to the promises he has made to his people from ages past. 
And so we remember that he is king, creator, and redeemer, but specifically that he has made promises as redeemer by his covenant, promises that he has fulfilled through sending his one and only son, Jesus, to sacrifice and suffer on the cross for the sins of the world so that all might come to know him by faith in him. And grace is what saves us, not our merit, not just because God loves us, but because God is a God who has chosen to take pleasure in saving and being true to his words. In our times, more than ever, we must learn to lament. But with the psalmist, God calls you to lament and remember, to remember the God who is king, creator, and redeemer, that our lament for why and how long is rooted in who God is. We remember God is king. We remember God's covenant and promises fulfilled in Jesus. Lament and remember. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, there's seemingly not a lot of reason to lament if there's not someone bigger than ourselves to turn to with that lament if there's not someone bigger than ourselves to turn to with hope that something can be different in this world. So we turn to you to lament of the sins that we have committed, the ways we have been sinned against, the ways that our neighbors have been sinned against. And we lament for that, Lord. But we also remember who you are, that you are King of kings, Lord of lords, King of the universe, and the one who is at work to redeem this creation. And so we turn our lament to you because of who you are, because of what you've promised to do, because of your great saving work through Jesus Christ. It is the gospel which gives us hope. It is the gospel which enables us to go beyond over-spiritualizing and over-materializing, but to turn to you, the one who calls us to be at work in this world, but also enables us to do so, trusting that you are the one who will do the work. In Jesus' name, amen.